Welcome to Meowcore, the podcast where I, Laura, tell my cool friend Panya about the bands that I love, which is mostly metal and hard rock. Meow. How are you doing, Panya? I'm good. I'm good. Good morning. Almost autumn. Yes. Yes, the weather is starting to cool off. I don't really approve of that, but that's because I'm solar powered. <laughs> I'm the only person I know who actually likes summer. Everybody else is like, yay, fall, and I'm going, but my warms and my sun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in this darkness, where do you get the energy? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, if I was any kind of goth, I would be a pastel goth. Oh. I don't particularly care for darkness. Is that a is that a thing? It is. It is in fact a thing. It is sometimes referred to as kawaii goth. Uh, I'm pretty sure I mangled that pronunciation, but uh, kawaii in Japanese means cute. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I'm googling that pastel pink. I'm seeing. Yes. Okay, uh-huh. that's lovely. So what are we listening to today? Would it be Cybergoth? No, there's things to Cybergoth that are more like digital. This is just I mean, I would have a touch of Cybergoth, I think, just because I'm very IT and techy, but mm. no, I would wear I would wear cherry blossom pink to go with my cherry blossom tattoo and teal and purple. Mhm. I love it. Okay. So let's show this pastel potential pastel goth uh, deep purple. Ooh, and purple. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> when, <laughs> when you talk about purple, you you talk about Mark One, Mark Two, Mark Three, like Tony Stark's suits. And okay. because okay. because after every lineup that they have, one or two people leave who are pretty essential to the sound, and the sound changes quite a lot. And today we're going to listen to music from Mark Two and Three, which is the first half of the 70s. What happened to Mark One? Mark One was a very pretty 60s band. Their biggest hit was uh, Hush. Have you heard Hush? Hush, Hush. I thought I heard a call in my name now. Hush, Hush. That one. No, I don't know that one. I'll go look for that one after. Let's don't interrupt our plan. Mm, we don't so, have a plan. We get very rambly. Yeah. So we did. We did Led Zeppelin already. We don't need to do any more rambling. <laughs> I, I was going to tell you about Hush because, well, because marks and stuff, and uh, they got a new bass player and a new singer because they wanted to go harder, be louder, be more hard rock than sixties uh, uh, flowery vocal harmony sort of stuff they wanted to to be oh. loud okay so they got a singer named Ian Gillen who can do the screaming and he can do the blues very powerful guy and let's watch on YouTube uh, Child in Time from 1970 this first one that I sent you I feel like I just took some LSD <laughs> Wow. Welcome back to the LSD experience. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's the 70s, so that's kind of the way it goes. Wow, it took them like two and a half minutes to get to what I think of as as hard rock. It was all just that 
keyboard and the cymbals, which was really nice, but not. I was like waiting for the guitars to come in. It's like, what are you guys doing? What's going on here? And then suddenly, bam! And yet, especially for a live show, the mix on that was gorgeous. Yep. Every single instrument perfectly clear. Mm -hmm. And the director was Which paying attention to each musician. Mm -hmm. And I think that made the solo, well, the, the non-lyrical part, I don't want to say solo, the non-lyric part in the middle, very, very nice. I think we've, we've mentioned before that modern music, especially modern rock, you have a tendency to be able to not be able to pick out individual instruments in the way that it's mixed. It's, it's very, it's a wall of sound. Mm -hmm. This was loud, but I could still hear each instrument. I could still tell what each one was doing, the keyboard mm -hmm. and the guitar, the bass, all of it just separate enough that I could hear everything. And I had my usual issue when you give me a video of I got distracted by the keyboardist's hands. Of course you did. He, This gentleman is very distracting. Has very nice hands. And then they'd focus on their faces and I'd go, where's my hairbrush? And I, I see some hair that needs brushing. Why are you guys so <laughs> fluffy? <laughs> Let them be fluffy. Fluffy, but not tangly. Ah, were they? Which one of them was tangly? Uh, they were all a little tangly. No, oh, okay. Mm, well, at least they had great volume. Yes. <laughs> In both senses of the word, they had excellent volume. <laughs> Ian Gillen had some really, not really nice waves and everything. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and in his voice too. Although, again, the, the screaming he was doing was definitely screaming, but it does not correlate with what I think of as metal screaming anymore. It was much higher of a pitch, I yeah, think, and, and much melodic. more melodic. Yeah, much more melodic. But I can see how that would evolve into the kind of screaming. Although it also doesn't match up with uh, like the kind of screaming that... Kayla and Mikla does in a couple of their songs, which is just literally straight up a female just shriek. Yes. There's I nothing. They don't even attempt to be melodic. It's just a scream. But it suits their music. And I think that's relevant here. I don't think a harsher scream would have suited this song. Mm -hmm. Because this, this seems to be an element of fear if you try to understand the lyrics. Yeah, it's very... Like we've discussed in previous songs, it's clearly rooted in the era with this discussion of the shooting and the lead and the ricochets. And there was a lot of concern during that era of not concern the way that we think of now of mass shootings, but more a nebulous concern about violence in general. Mm -hmm. And the idea that that violence as a general thing was bad and the association of that not with the act of shooting it's really hard to describe but there's a distinct difference between the way it's looked at now and the way this song portrays it mm -hmm. maybe it was more of a fear of war back then and an anti-war sentiment 
I think you're right. I do think that's a significant element to it. And the the one shooting was a blind man. See the blind man shooting at the world. So close your eyes and bow your head and wait for the ricochet. Right. Okay. Which evokes both the concern that the targeting is utterly indiscriminate, that anybody could be hurt who might not have anything to do with the whatever, and also both targeting is indiscriminate and the results of that can also be indiscriminate. Mm. That you don't know what the results are going to be, which is where the, the ricochet concept comes from. So we were, where were we, in 1970? Yes. Mm-hmm. I wanted to tell you a very short bit about this guitar player that they have, Richie Blackmore. Mm. I showed you his Pilgrim hats yesterday. Mm-hmm. You sure did, and it was very amusing. Yeah, that he really likes those hats. Hats were very important to him. He still wears hats, but they, they are still tall, but kind of pointy. Maybe because he's more in the folk area these days. I don't know. Is he trying to evoke uh, a pointed witch's hat now? Mm, no, it's still it's kind of shaped like a pilgrim's hat, but the the tip is smaller. Okay. There's not enough room for like for maybe two birds to land. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking when I see Richie Blackmore. Anyway. Now, uh, we've talked about these... I just had uh, a Discworld joke pop into my head. <laughs> you can say it if you want. Oh, well, the wizards of Unseen University in Discworld uh, frequently keep things in their wizard hats because a wizard is only dressed if he has his hat on. And uh, some of them have uh, alcohol uh, locations built into their hats and other such things. To the point that uh, should a wizard bow his head and you run into his hat, you are probably in as much danger from the construction of the hat as the magic of the wizard. Oh. <laughs> and Richie Blackmore had a radio in his hat at some point. So says internet trivi- <laughs> trivia. That's even more appropriate than what in the world. <laughs> so. All right. We were talking about these 70s bands that love live performances. Their records sound very live and they improvise and they are partners on on stage. Um, Blackmore once said to the singer Ian Gillen, when Gillen was still new in the band, um, tonight I will try to play you off the stage. I will challenge you and uh, it's nothing personal. It, there's no animosity, but this is how we are in this band. And Gillen said, well, then I will try to sing you off the stage. And Richie said, then that is how we make a great band. Yeah, that we did. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's what I was listening to when I said they were competing. But we were looking at Led Zeppelin. They didn't, they didn't seem like they were competing. They were in more of a partnership. Right. And let's go listen to a ballad on Spotify. It's called When a Blind Man Cries. The misery of drinking too much.
They like using the cymbals as punctuation more than heavier drums, I've noticed. Yeah, this this drummer is uh likes it sounds sharper it seems. I noticed in the video for the last one he had like five or six cymbals tuned to different notes, which I thought was was interesting. I've only rarely seen that. Mm-hmm. This is Ian Pace. He's one of the few drummers who are recognizable, I think, to non-musical ears. This, uh, this probably because sharp sound. that focus of this of the sharper yeah. sounds and the higher pitches. Mm -hmm. Just the way, maybe the way his, his drums were mic'd in the seventies, also. I don't think so. No, I really think it's it's more down to the preference of what pieces he uses. I'm I'm talking a little bit out of my ass because I don't know very mm -hmm. much about drums no, I get at you. all. But I, as I said, I did very much notice that he had a lot more symbols than I'm used to seeing. And obviously different drums make different notes based on the the physics of the drum. So if his kit was composed of drums with higher pitches or sharper sounds. Mm -hmm. then you wouldn't even need to mic it differently. It's simply the way the kit is constructed. Mm -hmm. But I added the miking because I, uh, today I listened to Deep Purple from the 80s and the drumming sounded a little different. Well, if it, it was a different drummer, he might have had a different kit. No, it was still him. It was still Ian Pace. But it was a bit lower, a, a bit louder. Kit. Yeah, yeah, you're right. But still... One of one of my favorite drummers, one of the few that I can easily recognize, and um, there it is. Whether I'm drunk or dead, I really ain't too sure. That always got me. Yeah, that's a very interesting line. It it implies a a correlation with drunkenness and death that I think isn't actually that common. Mm hmm. He's lying on the floor. In right. Some state. And these are very sad songs. But I was thinking, as I was listening to the lyrics, something else that I noticed that was interesting is this one, the previous one, they're very... What is the word I want? They're very obscure. They're very vague hmm. in their descriptions. You know, he says that he's grieving, but he doesn't say why. He doesn't say what he's grieving. Yeah. He says that he had a friend once in a room. That's really vague. That tells me <laughs> nothing. What kind of friend? What kind of room? What kind of circumstance? They had a good time. Okay, what kind of good time? Like, that could go six or eight different directions. But clearly, like, he's sad and upset and he's regretting something. But we don't know anything other than that. That's literally all there is. Mm -hmm. And I'm used to, especially in modern music listening to these songs that have, you know, they name specific locations. In some cases, they name specific people. They have enough detail that even if they're not naming specific things, the listeners can go, oh, this is about that event and that person. They can mm -hmm. make these correlations, whereas these are just incredibly lack of detail. All they do is evoke this one specific emotion. But mm -hmm. they don't even give you a lot of circumstances around that emotion to let you know, how do I put this? Like, the emotion is specific, but there is, 
when you know more about the circumstances which are evoking this specific emotion, it can become even more detailed and specific. And we're not getting any of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get it. It may be a, little e a bit easier to identify with it, though, if you don't have so many details. I think it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. In some cases, you don't want the specifics. You just want to evoke the emotion. And there are words in languages other than English that discuss this, this sort of nebulous and ill-defined, circumstantially, emotional feeling that you can get. And then there are other times when what you want is a song that specifically describes as closely as they can get this experience that you have so that you feel heard. Mm -hmm. True. Yeah. I wanted to tell you about there he is, one of my favorite, probably my favorite keyboard player, John Lord, whose hands you were very impressed by. Mm. Pretty impressed by his ability, too. Yeah. And people have always liked to joke about John Lord's big organ swinging back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so, although it was a, a very large uh, instrument. Mm -hmm. He's a very <laughs> tall man and has the strength to put it, pull it back and forth. In, when the song is more intense, there's more swinging of the big organ. Mm. Oh, that actually, that explains a lot about his playing ability, because that means that he can do the octave stretch without much stretch at all. Mm -hmm. Whereas yeah. I'm not a very, I have long hands for my height, but the octave stretch on a keyboard for me is a bit of a struggle. Mm -hmm. So the stretch between your, your pinky and, and uh, thumb. Doesn't quite cover an octave. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty close. But it doesn't. But for someone who is quite tall, and has, you know, longer hands, my husband is a foot taller than I am, and his hands overtop mine by about an inch. Mm -hmm. So watching him play an instrument is a very different experience than, than me, and gives him capabilities that I don't have. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's not quite right. It's not that I don't have those capabilities. It's that I have to achieve the same sound with different physical motions. Yeah, with different resources. You're working with different resources. Yeah. So that's John Lord, who now rests in peace. He died a few years ago. And uh, he was pretty much always in Deep Purple, from the 70s all the way to uh, when he retired at some point um, around the year 2000. Deep Purple still exists. There's, uh, I think, Pace on drums, Glover on bass, and Ian Gillen, Gillen for sure, singing. And they have other people filling the other positions. And John Lord, before their, the first album with Gillen, back in 1970, uh, was the first to initiate a concert w of a rock band with uh, an orchestra. Mm, Deep Purple are the first band that did that. Oh, that's always nice. I very much enjoy the way the sound changes when they do that. Mm -hmm. Was he... You, you talked about there being different marks of Deep Purple. Is there any figure who was in the band from the beginning that carried on through a considerable amount of their career? Richie Blackmore, the guitarist, and uh, Ian okay. Pace, the drummer. But wait, uh, Blackmore left uh, after a decade and then ca came back in the 80s and then now he's too lazy, doesn't want to go out and play. 
So <laughs> too lazy. <laughs> he is. He describes I himself mean, as loving music, but not loving the industry and all the stuff he has to do. I can't argue with him there. I have heard lots of not great things about the industry, and it's true that if they started playing in the 70s, which clearly they did, and that was the Mark II band, then Deep Purple has existed for over 50 years, and I'd be tired too. Oh, yeah. So maybe I'd Ian Pace, the drummer, if Pace is still with them, and the newer music doesn't thrill me that much, so I've, I haven't paid much attention. It's probably well, Ian right. Pace. <laughs> Mm, yeah, we That's we are right. only doing four years of their career. Mm, so Goodness yeah, gracious. <laughs> so it's uh, yeah, it was called Concerto for Group and Orchestra. They recorded it at the Royal Albert Hall. They went, they got into the newspapers and the news, and uh, then they did their first album with Ian Gillan, which was one of the big, one of the first big heavy metal albums. And uh, they were number one in many countries. Well, that's mm. a very nice venue. I would really like to go to a concert at some point in that venue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, legendary. Just, almost just for the experience. It almost wouldn't matter who I went to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I'd prefer to go see a really good artist. Just to multiply the experience a bit. So, Meowsters, when you finish with this episode, you will have to go and check out the rest of the Deep Purple catalog, since we're not covering all of it. <laughs> and there's a lot of it, with different singers, different guitar players. Mm, let's go and let's go to Spotify and listen to a, a song called Rat Bat Blue. Rat Bat Blue. From 73. It works best if I spell it correctly, but I have found it. Rat Bat Blue. Two mice and the, and the color blue. Let's listen to Rat Bat Blue by Deep Purple. That felt more like hard, hard rock than any of the others we've done before by Deep Purple. Yeah, it was very guitar driven, very riff driven. Yes. Yes, but then they break from the lyrics in the middle and suddenly here's this keyboard is just losing his mind. I could listen to that for hours. That was incredible. Mhm. Mm yeah, I agree. Just I would I would I may have to go find a live version of that and see if they focus at any point on the keyboardist's hands during that part because I'm not entirely sure you can play that with just two hands. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Mirari is over here expressing her agreement with me. She agrees? Okay. Hug. Yes. <laughs> uh, if you look for Deep Purple stuff live, there will be long improvisations. One song might might become 30 minutes. It will be fun. Yeah. There will be focus on John Lord's hands. Well, that was pretty standard for the era, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. To do that. They don't. That's not as common in concerts anymore, although I think it does depend on the band. No, and I wish it was. Even the, the more prog bands like Opeth and Porcupine Tree don't seem to improvise that much. Even though they have songs that are 20 minutes long. I suppose it's probably a function as much of the way that touring works and the way that venue requirements are as anything else. Hmm. If you're touring and you have a show three nights in a row, you can't 
afford to draw the show out much past its intended time because then you can't get to the next venue and there are requirements at least in the United States that very much uh, affect the amount of time that you have to get to the next venue even setting aside the physical distance there are laws about how long truck and bus drivers can drive that kind of thing so if they allow for that kind of improvisation then they also have to be aware as performers that that will mean that they will have to not play all the songs in the set they had planned Mm -hmm. yeah and the the other elements of the show the lighting the any kind of pyrotechnics that they're using any kind of <clears throat> any kind of movement of stage equipment mm, that's programmed or yeah or outfit changes they're not necessarily programmed in the sense of you know there's a timer ticking somewhere but unless you're lights guy is just as tightly wired into the band's uh camaraderie you can't just wander off at this point because you've got your lights planned Mm -hmm. and you've got the the pyrotechnics planned so i think it's not that they don't want to it's that in many cases they have chosen to provide a certain kind of show which does not build in improvisation Mm -hmm. yeah that's right that's probably it and if you compare to these sorts of groups or individuals who draw the truly enormous crowds the stadium filling crowds i know that taylor swift for example who can fill a single stadium three nights in a row in the same city has an extremely tightly planned show mm-hmm. yeah there are there are costume changes there are pyrotechnics there are specific light setups all of that is extremely tightly planned and she cannot afford to deviate more than perhaps a minute from that or it's not going to happen and they won't make it out on time and they won't make it to the next show on time. Yeah, it makes sense. Whereas a lot of the technology and a lot of the expectations were very different in the 70s. We didn't have... I mean, yes, the pyrotechnics existed, and yes, the lighting existed, but it not it was not the same. Technology has evolved. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe the laws regarding driver time existed at all then. And maybe the unions of stage workers were not so expansive. Right. Right. So all of that would have an effect on the ability of the musicians to just wander off whatever their plan was, assuming they bothered to have one, which may not have been true. And other things that were very different when I watched the documentaries about these 70s bands, uh, they don't have a a two-year album cycle like contemporary bands have. They would be on tour for a long time then they would have a week in the studio, then they would have shows again, and then another week in the studio. And there seemed to be a lot more touring 
less focus on studio recordings, on on them being polished. Uh, they were not working on music videos. They were not working on social media. Things were different. I think, I guess that shows the evolution of the music industry as a whole. Yep. Live music has stopped being... Uh, live music in the way that it was experienced then has really kind of stopped being a thing. I mean, it was stopped dead during COVID, but that's a whole different discussion. <laughs> yeah. So what's next? Next is Mark III. Um, okay. We have Ian Gillen, the singer, leaves the band and... Uh, the bass player Roger Glover leaves the band. No, wait. Wait, 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 wait. Yes, they do. They do. Richie Blackmore is still here. He's even though he has a problem, he doesn't love humans much. Um, he still hasn't gotten completely sick, so he's still here, sick of humans. Um, so we have Blackmore on guitar. They get a singing bass player named Glenn Hughes and they get the man who I would eventually um, call daddy, David Coverdale. <laughs> <laughs> and I, <laughs> I call him daddy, not, be, not because of some strange kinky thing, um, not kink shaming at all, it's not strange, but because he's had a bigger role in my life than my biological father. Uh, David Coverdale's music was there since my mid-teens, and it's still here. It feels like it, it's in the fabric of my heart, wherever my heart is in my spirit, wherever my spirit Aww. is in my mind. So he's Aww. very young and green. He's like in the in the beginning of his 20s, and he's singing his heart out. And uh, let's hear it now in uh, Burn from 73. It's the studio recording of the song, but the footage is from the California Jam Festival. Okay. Let's listen to Burn by Deep Purple. I don't have enough space to dance to that in this room. Oh, you felt like dancing? That is the song to dance to. That is the song to party to. Why am yeah. I old? <laughs> yeah. I remember... Yeah. More like that, please. Yeah. That was... That sounded almost happy when the... During the guitar solos and the keyboard solos, there was elation. This sort of baroque element like you're listening to Vivaldi or Bach in a good mood yeah although I think if you come if you match that up with the lyrics with what the song is about that is the emotion of the the woman doing the burning <laughs> she has had enough and she's going to set everything on fire and she is freaking ecstatic about it Oh, I like that. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, that that is the release of someone who has just had enough and she is going to burn every bridge she can get her hands on. Hmm. She's done. 
And she is happy about it. Didn't even think that the music could be uh, showing the emotions of someone that the lyrics are not... The lyrics are from the, the point of view of the people of the town. Yeah. Right. Hmm. That's nice. Sweet revenge. Right. And the other thing that I quite liked about that, it, it combines the, those glorious riffs and the excellent keyboard work. And David Coverdale is a really good singer, but this is the first one you've given me where there's any vocal harmonies at all mm -hmm. yeah now they have in two all singers of the yeah. previous songs right in all the previous songs only ian was singing mm -hmm. and there are a lot of bands where you have a primary singer where you have a lead singer and they're only really named as the singer but the other musicians will provide some backup elements so i don't know why they waited this long mm-hmm <laughs> Yeah, it is nice. It is nice. And I do think that the harmonies are part of what, for me, evokes that emotion. It's not just the riffs or the, the specific, what, like tuning or chords that they're picking. It's those harmonies. Yeah, that too. That are, that are evoking that, that sense of ecstatic revenge. Yeah, Mark III is something to be proud of. They were pretty, they were, it was a big sound. Yes. And yet I didn't feel overwhelmed by it in the sense of like the sound, the mm -hmm. emotion. Yes. The intensity. Yes. But not the, the literal level of the sound that was not overwhelming. Which happens to you more often with contemporary rock and metal. It does. You're like, oh, it that's does. too intense for me. Mm hmm. Like I need to, I need to not be right up at the stage. I need to turn the volume down a little bit. I didn't feel that way with this. One. Mm -hmm. So the seventies will be a comfortable place for us. I do have plans for a, a few more seventies bands. That's nice. Oh boy! I realize I'm plans. like I have plans. I've got Bad Company. I've got Thin Lizzy. I've got Boston. That kind of stuff. Mm. Okay, let's do another very intense one, which taught a lot of metal heads how to do metal. It's called it's called Stormbringer. Who is the Stormbringer? What is the Stormbringer? We don't know, but it's pretty impressive, and it's coming our way. Let's get it on Spotify. I don't know how I feel about that. Hmm. A bit more stormy, a bit more somber. Somber, yes. I'm not sure about stormy. And I think it has something to do with the fact that in a lot of ways it felt... <sighs> repetitive is the wrong word. It has a repetitive riff, a very pervasive one. Yeah, it's very... yeah. And there's no... It didn't feel like there were any points in the song that just jolted me out. That, that were a sudden shift. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know if my expectation of that is predicated on what I've heard from them before, on my whole experience of 70s rock music, or on the the theme around which it was based. Mm hmm On the other hand, let me think about this for a minute. 
the song is not about the storm being here. It's not about being in the storm. It's about that that held breath waiting for it to get here. And if I think about it in that sense, there then the riffs are definitely appropriate because it 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 hooks up into your pulse and the mm. the heartbeat held breath waiting for a storm to arrive does feel like that but it's still odd because the tension within the music doesn't increase any it's that same level of intention of tension and intensity the whole way Mm -hmm. and i suppose i just expected it to be different partly because of what the lyrics were Mm -hmm. which is not really fair is it and john lord didn't come in to break it up with this keyboard with a keyboard solo that's true it was a very richy song true. he just went wow 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 at the start yeah i did like that at the beginning that was that was very different and i was kind of going what's making that that's cool it was the big organ yeah but then we've reached the point in the 70s where those more uh, uh more Asian flavored sounds are coming in. And I do feel that that particular kind of sound, although it's played on a very familiar kind of organ, it's inspired by things like the Asian sitars and it's inspired by things like theremins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess. With this wah-wah effect and what the mm-hmm. keyboards did. Yeah, I get that. And that's about the same era, I think, when that was coming in for other bands as well. Okay. What was that? 74. From the same album, at the end of the album, there's a very soft and quiet song called Soldier of Fortune, a big favorite for a lot of Bulgarians and most probably a lot of Deep Purple fans. So let's listen to Soldier of Fortune and that'll be our last song. You always like to give the ballad songs. Okay, when we're looking for this on Spotify, make sure to find the Deep Purple version and not Mm -hmm. the Opeth version. Yes, which is also very nice, but... Not what we're doing. Yeah, it has to be daddy. Let's listen to Soldier of Fortune by Deep Purple. I'm still trying to parse my way through the lyrics because that feels odd. The phrase soldier of fortune is usually used to refer to mercenaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is confusing. But it's a sort of a Don Quixote character. Uh, He's got windmills. There's echoes of that, but it's mostly, it seems to be a song about somebody who never quite seemed to find anything in their life to commit to. And I'm telling you, if you're a mercenary, you have found a thing to commit to. Not a cause, but that's a different discussion. Maybe not a love to commit to. No, I don't know. It just seemed odd, especially in after the, the earlier songs where it was clear that they were singing about uh, the, the anti-war and the pacifism from earlier in the era. So I don't know. It's just odd. Mm-hmm. Something figurative, maybe. It could be. I mean, phrases do get changed over over history. I don't know that that one's changed, but maybe. I don't know. 
He tends to write about uh, the, the the lyrics are by David Coverdale, Daddy. He tends to write about uh, love, about love relationships. So he was probably yeah. singing about committing. But it's funny. He That's was twenty three when he recorded this, and it's the it sounds like and yet it talks about old getting person. old, which is hilarious. Yeah, he's getting old. But then it's not. This is far from the first song by someone in their 20s that I've listened to that has talked about getting older. And there's something for certain teenagers, I suppose, that when you become an adult, you have this feeling of loss, of getting older. I don't know where it comes from. I certainly didn't have it. But it appears to be fairly common with musicians. Hmm. not really sure where... what. That's odd. They've been around the world several times. They've seen, they've had great responsibility with their careers, maybe. I suppose that could be it. I just, it just seems quite odd. Mm-hmm. But he but did, I, he did pretty well. That is certainly a very slow and sad song. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, his vocal style is interesting. He has these very desperate vibratos a lot of sadness in his voice and his breath is audible he kept that he's always kept that he always records his breathing that's that's pretty nice because it sounds good to me there are songs and musicians for whom the sound of the breathing especially the the breathing in is intended as a part of the the message of the song mm-hmm. that you can hear them especially i think with with songs with intense more negative emotions they want you to be able to hear the breathing in as as if it was a gasp in crying Mm-hmm. As if they were preparing to scream. They want that same effect because it's part of the emotional evocation of the music. And that's part of their instrument. Mm-hmm. We don't normally think of it that way, but in the same way that, that you can get some pretty unique sounds out of guitars and keyboards if you don't play them the way that everybody expects them to. The same thing is true with the voice. Yeah, that's true. So that was Mark Three of Deep Purple. Other changes happen after that. Richie Blackmore goes off and forms Rainbow with Dio. David Coverdale leaves after another album and forms Whitesnake. It's a whole family tree, Deep Purple. Sounds like it. Or possibly the word we're looking for here is web. <laughs> yeah. Believe and do something different and then come back with the things they've learned from that and come together and split up and form different groups. And mm-hmm. well, I bet a chart of that would be amazing. Yeah, I'll get and you also one. also really, really complicated. Mm-hmm. That's part of uh, what makes us proud to be metalheads and part of what makes us a bit um, 
what's it called? Gatekeepy. Something worse than proud. Because you don't know all the family trees that I know. So what are you doing here? Well, I can't know if you don't teach me. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which I suppose is the whole point of Meowcore. So if you're if you're a Meowster who's come because you love heavy metal, please come and teach me. If you're a Meowster who's come because you wish to learn heavy metal, come sit on my side of the sofa and we'll learn. Yeah. And my priority is not uh, really people. Uh, it's more the music that I expose you to. But uh, when it's people that I love so much, I can't help but tell you their names and tell you what they're like and what they did. So, yeah, that's Deep Purple. Thank you for listening. And uh, tell me about what the cats are doing. That was quite good. Since it's a bit rainy and gray outside, they're all lying in various postures of sleep <laughs> around the room. Uh, we took... A number of trips lately that took us out of the house for multiple nights. So there was quite a bit of, what do you mean you left us with only Grandpa to check on us? We don't approve of that. There was definitely some cold shouldering when we came back. Mm. <laughs> but yes, when we go off on these trips, my dad lives reasonably close. So we typically ask him to come in and check on them every other day. Put down a little more food and water. It's true that that's one of the reasons why we keep cats over dogs. If you keep dogs, you pretty much have to have someone check on them every single day. They've got to be let out to go to the bathroom and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But cats you can leave alone a little bit longer. And we only typically ask him to come and do that if we're going to be gone for more. If, if you leave them more food, will they overeat and then not have enough for like no. in, two days? in two days? No, not that we've ever noticed. Some households that keep cats have a feeding schedule and they only put down food at certain times of day. We tend to just leave food out for them and they'll eat when they're hungry. Mm. They don't really have a habit of overeating. Jonna will occasionally behave when the treats come out or when the human food comes out as though she hasn't eaten ever in her entire life. <laughs> but the food is always down for her. She has no excuse. And for all that, you know, she was saved from a sonic parking lot, she's never been starved. She just likes to pretend that she's dying of the hunger. <laughs> she just she just likes to pretend that she's going to steal all the food right out of your hands and what are you eating, Mom? And give me give me your attention and what what's the song I want? Uh Hmm can't remember the lyrics to the song now. Ah, there it is. Hey, what you eating? Because it looks good to me. Hey, what you eating? Because it looked like some cheese. Hey, what you eating? Give me one bite. Just give me one bite. Just give me one bite. It's a banana. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You sent me that one. Yeah. Yeah. When we have an episode where I introduce you to folk artists, and we'll do that in a couple of months. I'll play you all some Mikey Mason, and I will c include some of the Bitey Little Blighter songs, of which that was one. Okay. I'd like that. <clears throat> but Jana is, is very much like that. What are you eating? Oh, I'm not interested in that. 
a couple of months ago, my, my comfort food is macaroni and cheese with chicken and apple sausages in. And I was having a bad night, so we had that for dinner. And I was talking to the husband, and the bowl was right there at my hip. I was standing right there, and I blink, and John is halfway across the room with a piece of sausage in her teeth. <laughs> to this day, we don't know how she pulled that off. Pretty sure she just teleported it out of the bowl into her mouth. Like, it's just, it's just what Jonas do. <laughs> but yes, they were all very offended that we were gone for a few days. And then they were extra special offended because I then left again overnight. And they're going, Mom, this is not okay. This is not okay. Um, Jonna and Buddy kind of followed me around the house for a couple of days. <laughs> like, they didn't need to be touching me, but they needed to be in the same room as me. They needed to be in the same room as me. Mm-hmm. And let's see. What kind of author shall I recommend you this week? Yes. I don't believe I've done Terry Pratchett yet. And since I quoted some Terry Pratchett or described some Terry Pratchett at any rate, let's talk to you guys about Terry Pratchett. Mm. If you've watched any good omens, then you do know a little bit of the sense of humor, which characterizes Cherry Pratchett's works. But his primary world space, his primary story space, was the world known as Discworld, a round, flat world traveling through space on the back of a turtle. And before you ask what the turtle stands on, it doesn't. It's a turtle. It swims. <laughs> Um, there's there's a considerable amount of world building in there. The the tiny sun does in fact move around the Earth. Uh, they have eight directions instead of just four. Uh, it's it's surprisingly complex. I believe at this point it runs to forty plus books, oh. which are typically divided by fans into what we refer to as sub-series because a series that spans that much world building you're not following the same characters throughout every single book there are references to certain characters throughout every single book death for example frequently appears at least as some kind of joke in every book but they are grouped by whatever the main character, main focus is. So you have the Wizards of Unseen University, frequently fronted by Rincewind, who is mostly a wizard by virtue of, well, not being told he couldn't be. He's a very bad wizard. He's the world's chiefest coward, the man with a thousand retreating backs. Hmm. Um, so is he bad at magic? He, he is very bad at magic. He is very bad at pretty much everything. <laughs> um, but he has this tendency to be used by the gods of the world or fate or whatever to get problems solved. And there's really no other way of explaining it than that. He is a survivor of the First Order. 
he he typically wears a a very shabby moth-eaten kind of robe and will never be seen without his hat upon which is written wizard with two z's (laughs) because if you do not have a hat as a wizard you are not a wizard Uh, another subseries is, in fact, that revolving around Death, who is a lot more human than I think it, I think Terry intended him to be, for starters, but within the world is a lot more human than the world wanted him to be. And so he gets into all kinds of scrapes. Uh, he attempts to retire at some point and then realizes that that's not going to work the way he wanted it mm-hmm. to. He adopts a daughter... And that doesn't work the way he wanted it to. And the end result of him adopting a daughter semi leads us into another subseries, which is closely interconnected, which is that of his granddaughter, Susan. And uh, in Discworld, some traits are not inherited in the truly genetic sense. And so Susan, being the granddaughter of death, has the capability to speak in his voice has a black streak in her white hair and is extremely sensible. And since this is a world where magic is real, sometimes this sensibility takes the form of providing the children for whom she is the... What's the word I want? Teacher. Providing the children for whom she is the teacher with a poker that they may smack the monster under the bed. Hmm. It's not that the monster under the bed isn't there, but you don't have to let it dominate you. Good grief. Here, just take this poker and whack it. It'll leave you alone. Oh, you can sleep too after that? Well, I mean, if Susan has given you a poker and you have smacked the monster under the bed, the monster under the bed is probably going to leave you alone because they're all very aware of Miss Susan. Hmm. All the monsters are very aware of Miss Susan. I like this very usual name that that he gave her, Susan. Uh, Yes, yes. Uh, Typically, for a brand new reader, one is recommended to start with not at the beginning of the series, as in the first published, but at the beginning of the Guards subseries. And one of Terry's most famous and most well-developed characters is Samuel Vimes, who begins as the chief of the Night Watch of Ankh-Morpork, which is like London, Amsterdam, New York City, and Los Angeles all rolled into one. And then maybe some Venice or Paris thrown in there too. Uh, Vimes has not had a great life so far. He is basically living in a bottle. And then some things happen to him and he rises in the world very, very, very rapidly. But somehow the essential Vimes never quite changes. In a bottle, how? Was he like a genie? Uh, it, in the alcoholic sense. Okay. He is, when you first encounter Vimes, he is very much a drunkard. He is very much an alcoholic. Uh, he is a drunkard and an alcoholic in the classic sense of attempting to drown his sorrows. Because if you say someone's in a bottle, I could take it literally with this sort of world that has demons and, you certainly uh, could. and gnomes and stuff. You certainly could. 
um, and I believe that there are some pixies and gnomes and probably feagles who live in literal bottles. But Vimes is a human. And that does bring us to another important element of Discworld, which is that it is not populated solely by humans. There are dwarves and trolls. There are elves and gnomes and the wee free men. There are vampires and werewolves. And God knows what else. We actually probably haven't encountered all of the things. Um, and the thing that most people become very quickly aware of when they get deeper into the Discworld books is that Terry Pratchett will take a common, familiar, real-world thing, insert it into Discworld, and then turn it up to 11. So he has a book which is basically discussing the rise of Hollywood. It's called Moving Pictures. And it takes every single element of the early movie industry and turns it up to 11 and makes you aware of how absurd and ridiculous it was. Hmm. And at the same time, makes you aware of the intensity of emotion. Of the, the reality of it, the, the roots of why it existed. And he does this with a number of things. He does it with rock and roll. He does it with religion from about six different directions. Uh, he does it with history, including the history of Egypt in particular. He does it with crime fighting. He does it with world politics. Again, from about six different directions. Um, he does it with small city politics. Hmm. And he can take you from laughing so hard you can't breathe to shocked and amazed silence in a single sentence. I would hesitate to say that many of the best bits of Good Omens are his because there's no clear way of telling what in Good Omens was Gaiman and what in Good Omens was Pratchett. They wrote extremely well together and I don't think it's fair to attempt to separate it. Mm -hmm. But... It is certainly true that some of the very specific lines in Good Omens that make you stop and go, I never considered it that way, are inspired by Pratchett's way of looking at the world. And so when you read Terry Pratchett, they are comedy books. They are funny. You will laugh. But you'll come away from about half of the books looking at things in the real world in a different way. And if you don't, I'm not really sure what you're doing reading Discworld. Uh, he has written other books that are not set in Discworld, including Good Omens. Um, I believe one of them is called Johnny and the Bomb. He wrote a five-book series... And I have to go and look up the name of his co-author that is set effectively on modern day Earth and involves humanity discovering the ability to step into other versions of Earth. Mm. And plays on that idea that every decision that's ever made splits off. Except that, oddly, none of these other Earths really have humans in them. 
and I don't recall that they explained that very clearly, but the first one, I believe, is called The Long Earth. Stephen Baxter and Terry Pratchett, yes. The first one is called The Long Earth, and it's not... It is not intense in the same way that I have always found Discworld to be, but again, it does incorporate his extremely talented ability to take something very familiar, very ordinary, in fact, and turn it upside down and make you look at it from a different perspective. And along the way, you will probably come to feel very fond of certain characters you will cheer for them there will be characters that you will want to hate and can't there will be characters that you think you might be expected to hate and don't <laughs> and there will be characters that make you burn with absolute fury and then scream in delight when they finally get their freaking comeuppance <laughs> uh, over the course of the Discworld series he takes the story from the classic fantasy medieval stasis uh, right into the steam era and along the way you will watch the characters particularly in Ankh-Mar Pork adapt to this he doesn't just introduce this technology and nobody reacts to it there is discussion of how it's changed things there's discussion of how some people don't like it and some people do he is uh, much more talented than the usual run of storytellers in using the different races of his world to evoke modern identity politics and make you think about it differently. There's a character, there, there is one of his books spends quite a bit of time focusing on the trans- uh, I don't want to say movement, that's not correct, but the 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 experiences that trans people have. Mm -hmm. Because dwarves, while they have male and female dwarves, all dwarves present as male. All dwarves are supposed to present as male. It is a deep and intrinsic part of their culture. So when some dwarves come to Ankh-Morpork Pork and discover lipstick and lingerie <laughs> and high heels... There's a problem. There's a lot of problems. And yet, within the context of those stories, you are given the information to empathize with the people on the other side. You are given the information to empathize both with the dwarves who want to be female or present as female, regardless, and the dwarves who fear this. It's made clear why this is hard for them, what they're afraid of losing. And so, again, it's very much one of those things that he takes a subject that could be incredibly sensitive and incredibly uh, base-breaking. And he makes you think about it from all the different possible angles. And yet he does that whole thing in a story that is heartwarming and funny and quintessentially fantasy. Hmm. So this is why the angel and the demon are so gay. It's not just Neil you know, Gaiman's influence. You know, that might be part of it. That might be, in fact, part of it. I'm pretty sure that the phrase gayer than a tree full of monkeys on nitrous oxide was Terry's. <laughs> it, has, it has his voice. I'm pretty sure that was his. 
Yeah. Um, I, I'm also pretty sure that the, the emphasis within the book at certain points that angels don't really have gender and so applying human gender binaries or thoughts to them is inaccurate. I'm pretty sure that was Terry's too. Mm-hmm. Cuz that is that is something that he does. The the races that are not human in his books are not human. And they do things and they think things and they behave in ways that must have been extremely difficult to write just because they're not human it as a as a fantasy or science fiction storyteller one of the most difficult things to do is to step far enough outside of the fact that we are human we can't get away from being human we have 10,000 plus years of human written into our blood and bones and think of things that are very difficult for the ordinary run of humans to think so that your alien characters do in fact feel alien. Your dwarves don't feel like humans who happen to be small and love mining. <laughs> they feel very different and Terry's very good at that. Um, we lost Terry to early onset Alzheimer's. Uh, it's been quite a while now. Probably ten years. I remember. Yeah, it's I had a been friend about ten was years now. I think. Let me find the date. Where is the date? Twenty fifteen. So eight years now. Uh, he told us. Um, about eight years before that, that he had been diagnosed with it, and he was never quiet about his condition. He continued to write and published books pretty much right up until his death and then uh, declined to permit anything like what happened with the Wheel of Time by writing into his will that all of his unfinished works were to be put on a hard drive and crushed with a steamroller. Oh, so that no one in his entourage is tempted to finish them. No one could ever finish them. No one could that there could be no publication of incomplete works, there could be no uh, continuation the way Dune was done. Mm. Um, and the last book that he published for the Discworld series, there were there were two last ones. One of them was the final book for the uh, young adult series following a young witch. Uh, called I Will Wear Midnight and the last one for Discworld was called Raising Steam which ostensibly focused on the development of trains but in reality when you read it it's very clear that it is his goodbye to this world he has created. He does not close off any stories but there's quite a bit of bringing back characters we haven't seen in a while the arc of the story, the plot itself, isn't really very deep. Uh, we are given to see that the Discworld will continue to be the Discworld, good and bad, light and dark. Hmm. And there was some concern, actually, after he passed, 
that we would not get the Good Omens television show because it was written in his will that there was to be no continuation, that there was to be no more. Uh, but apparently he also left in his will, um, I don't know if it was a note or a letter or what, but he left uh, notice, I guess, to Gaiman to go ahead and finish Good Omens. <laughs> and there are elements within the TV show that if you know the right things, you can see that Terry was being honored. His hat that he typically wore hangs in Aziraphale's bookshop. Uh, I believe that's also his scarf with it. There is at least one point in Series 2 where one of Terry's books is prominently displayed. Although you do have to catch it. Mm -hmm. You have to be paying attention to see it. But as uh, Gabriel is rummaging around in the bookshop, he is handling some of Terry's books. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. Uh, television versions were made by Sky and BBC of, I think, six of the Discworld books. Uh, I do think it would be worthwhile uh, to watch the televised version of The Color of Magic, which is the first book. It's really The Color of Magic and The Light Fantastic, which they are two separate books, but they really go together, and they ought to be read back to back. Uh, it stars Sean Astin, and I think he does an excellent job. When was that made? And in, like in which decade? I, so I can kind of imagine the, the visual effects. Oh, it was pretty recently. It was, it was, um, uh, I don't remember when that was released. Somewhere around 2010. Okay. Because if it's more recent, it can do, um, it's, it's nicer now that we have more convincing visual effects for stories like this one, with beings like these. Yeah, I mean, the thing about Discworld is that when it is uh, made into a visual medium, it doesn't actually need a lot of visual effects. For all that there are wizards, magic is not used that often. And they don't actually need a whole lot of visual effects. And that's, uh, again, one of the things that I quite like about the, the televised versions. Uh, I'm trying to find when they were released, but I can't find it. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, it's quite good. Um, one of the Susan stories was made into a televised version. It's called Hogfather and is uh, Terry's focusing on the Christmas holidays at that point and also on the idea of belief and what can what is or is not created out of it i can't remember what else they made into television versions uh he was knighted by the queen before he died um considerably before he died i think actually i don't know that they were connected i wonder i wonder what it's like when he was writing that final book of discworld and he he pretty much knew that he wouldn't that it would be the last, that his health was declining. I wonder what that feels I, like. I don't honestly know that he knew when he was writing that last one that he wouldn't write any others. He had always asserted to us that he would continue to write until he simply couldn't. And after he announced the fact that he had early onset Alzheimer's and stopped 
um, traveling to conventions, he began to talk publicly about, well, the term that ended up being used was assisted suicide, although it was not a term he liked, and it's not a term that some of the rest of us care for mm -hmm. either. But effectively, he did not want to end up in a circumstance where he had no more memory, where Alzheimer's had completely eaten his mind and he could not care for himself. He wished to choose the time of dying. Ultimately, that's not what ended up happening. Ultimately, he did pass away in his sleep before he reached the point where he felt that was necessary. But he discussed it quite a lot in the eight years between the announcement and when he actually died. He did, I believe, a couple of documentaries on it for the BBC mm. and discussed it quite a bit. That's a nice contribution. Uh, uh, the way he put it was, it should be possible for someone stricken with a serious and ultimately fatal illness to choose to die peacefully with medical help rather than suffer. Um, yeah, I agree. I think we were all glad as fans that it didn't come to that. I think that would have been a very hard decision for him to make, ultimately. Probably not allowed in the UK. You would have had to go to Switzerland. I genuinely don't know. I would have to do some research on that. But I, I do not know. I just clicked on the wiki article about Stephen Baxter and I, I heard his name somewhere and just looking uh, at his titles is, is making, me, making me salivate because I love this sort of hard science fiction. Yes, he's a, Stephen Baxter is a very hard scientist and I'll, I'll do a segment on him um, for a different episode. I have read a few of his other books, but uh, I want to stay focused on Sir Terry at this point. We'll come back to Mr. Baxter later. Um, I was able to meet Mr. Pratchett before he even announced that he had the Alzheimer's, but it was one of the last American conventions that he did oh. when he came over to the States. And he was very, he was a very nice fellow and not in a, any kind of way that felt forced. He also had a surprisingly high voice and he did not stand very tall. But he gave an excellent discussion on how you can end up developing a world space and a city space that is more re honestly more realistic than you expected um there was never uh he never drew an official map of Discworld or of Ankh-Morpork and yet when people set out to do these things there were very very few conflicts in the information he gave in the stories. It was possible to lay out a map of these spaces without going, well, that doesn't work. These two streets would be on top of each other. And so he gave an interesting discussion on how that came to be, on how that can be a thing. Uh, he also stared at my breasts. <laughs> Incidentally, I was wearing a shirt with writing over my breasts at the time. 
But he was the one who phrased it that way. I encountered him going into that panel, in fact, and he looked at my chest and then looked up at me and went, I'm sorry, I'm staring at your breasts. I'm trying to read your shirt. Yeah. Yeah. And I just laughed and laughed so hard. Um, his are some of the few books that I have made an effort both to have signed and to keep the signed copies when various events have happened in my life, which might make that a problem. Because, because it's Pratchett. Mm-hmm. For example, when you were moving house? No, uh, there's a different story there that I'm not inclined to tell right now. Mm-hmm. I've had much too good a time. I don't want to bring everybody down. Okay. Or any more down than the loss of a beloved author. I'll tell that some other time. So you met him once, and that's when you got your book signed? That's when we got the book signed. Um, my husband and I each picked out a specific book from his series that we liked the best and asked him to sign those. Uh, my favorite book of Terry Pratchett's work is called Small Gods, and it is, in fact, a treatise on religion from about six different directions. It is not deeply connected with any of the other disc Discworld books, except insofar as it is set on Discworld and involves and mentions locations and people which are which appear in other Discworld books. Mm-hmm. But it's a very interesting look at what large religions look like from both the inside and the outside, and how belief in ourselves, in gods, in the structures which are created by religions around gods can have effects. Um, I don't want to spoil too much of that one because I do love it. It is my favorite. Um, It is my favorite because it makes me think quite hard. Why small? And every... Small gods. Hmm? Why are they small gods? Small Uh, Small gods is the term used on Discworld for gods in whom no one really believes anymore. Discworld does in fact have the familiar fantasy conceit of a god has power predicated on the number of believers they have. Yeah, like in American gods. Yes. And so small gods is the term used for gods who have no or very few believers. And if I tell you anything else, I will spoil the story. Uh, I do tend to go back and read it every oh, five or six years as a sort of a recentering of the way that I perceive religion in the modern day. I mean, we've discussed a little bit before both of our conflicts with Christianity as a whole. And I find that Small Gods is a good way for me to get a new to to reperspectivize myself that's not a word on my frustration with modern christianity it helps me take a step back from how frustrated i can be with it and get a new perspective and go i don't need to be this angry not worth it maybe from someone who's not uh, who's not biased cuz he's neither uh, an an atheist activist, neither a Christian, like a very strict Christian. I honestly don't know. An onlooker um, on religion. Possibly. 
while it is absolutely true that he deliberately and head-on tackled quite a bit of uh, divisive subjects, it's not actually all that clear in most of his works where he stood on these subjects. Mm. He does not typically use his books as a soapbox the way other authors do, the way occasionally David Weber does. He merely presents it in the context of characters and uh, world development and leaves you to make up your own mind. Hmm. So I could not say if he was ever overtly religious. I don't think I've ever bothered to look. And frankly, at this point, I genuinely don't care. So let me leave you with this last bit about Sir Terry Pratchett. In the later Discworld books, he emulates the modern uh, internet with a device called the Clax. It's functionally a visual telegraph. And in one of the books that focuses quite closely on the Clax, you learn that the operators who pass the messages along have a number of what they refer to as header codes. Things that aren't part of the actual message, but are information that goes along with the message. Things that tell you continue to pass this message to the end of the line, information about destinations, um, other things like that. And there is a specific code GNU that means continue to send this message to the end of the line. Don't transcribe it when you are transcribing messages for the receivers. When it reaches the end of the line, turn it around and send it back. In the book, it's used to great effect to imply that dead Klaxmen are sending messages. When Sir Terry died, across the internet there began to appear in email signatures, in website headers, embedded in images, GNU Terry Pratchett. It is our way, as fans, of keeping his name alive, of keeping specific references to him alive. And if you see someone mention Terry without using this, I guarantee you that at least two or three and probably more comments on this thing will be the simple phrase, GNU, Terry Pratchett. Hmm. But how do they, in the book, how, how is it possible that, that those who are dead are relaying messages? Oh, they're not. They're actually not. Right. But within the context of the story, the the impression that they might be is relevant in a social manipulation kind of way. Hmm. And again, if I told you much more, it would spoil the heck out of the story, and that is really one of the very good books. But it, it's used within the context of the story as a bit of social manipulation. Mm -hmm. And as a way of revealing publicly information which might otherwise be doubted.
But you also have to remember that Discworld is a world in which death is real. And the person. And yeah. so the ability to speak with the dead might actually be a viable thing. That just doesn't have to be, happen to be touched on in this particular story. I like this this code thing, a way to honor him. That's really nice. And as far as I've ever heard, it was pretty much spontaneous. It just started appearing across the internet in from about half a dozen different directions. And he, like, he left a trace and it became a ripple. Yes. <laughs> I like it. Okay. Anything else from you? Nope, that's it. That's it. That's it, girls and boys, and those in between and beyond. Thank you for listening. And uh, remember to take your pills if you have pills to take, drink water, and eat something. Right. Listen to heavy metal, grow your hair as long as you like, and engage in self care. Yes. Bye bye. See you next time. <laughs>